0: I've been thinking this week about the journey over the last year that um, my family and I have had, and how we are now here with you. And I've been thinking a lot about what God is doing in our church, among a lot of us on individual levels and as a group. And it really is quite amazing. Um, so many of us were at very different places. Uh, just four months ago when our church moved into this room. Um, and and if if we stretch back nine months ago, a whole nine months ago, to when my family moved here and we began worshiping in our living room, um, how many of us did not even know each other um, or where we were or what was going on with us? Or if we go back one year ago when there were a group of families who were meeting together, I guess once a month for worship and once a month to do a service project and once a month to do an outreach, or or the spring before that, when a group of people here in Harrisonburg met with Dan Clare, the pastor of Church of the Resurrection in D.C., and just began to articulate that God was calling you to be a part of a new church that he was planting here in this community. It's remarkable, really, the way... I mean, if we took time for each person to share about how we've gotten here... It's really quite a remarkable thing. So, you know, I kind of wonder sometimes what are we going to look like in four months um, or nine months from now or a year from now? I mean, there's really no way of knowing, is there? There's no way um, of, of knowing where this thing is going to take us. We just can't know the details of what the Church of the Incarnation is going to look like. There's, there's just no manual, you know, there's no blueprint. And I think the reason is, is because churches aren't franchises. You know, churches aren't these things that you can just um, reproduce as perfectly as possible, you know, just color by number kind of thing. So, so as I've been thinking about this, and we've just come out of the Easter season, and we've just come out of the, the Pentecost season, and now we're looking at this long stretch of time that Christ, Christians all over the world call ordinary time. This time between now and Advent, I've been thinking of, uh, and praying a lot about where the Lord would have us to turn in His Word, um, to listen for His voice together. And after many months of praying and trying to get ready for this moment, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, hearing the voice of God is <laughs> kind of a gamble sometimes. Sometimes He shouts, but normally He whispers, huh? I, I, I really do believe that He's leading us to 1 Corinthians, that between now and Advent, for the next 15 weeks or so, that together we're going to listen here for the voice of God. This, this strange letter that poses a lot of difficulties when we try to interpret it. Um, but it's this letter from Paul, the Apostle Paul, to Christians in Corinth who were one of the first churches, one of the first Christian churches. And, and when we read this letter... One of the reasons I think God is leading us to it, I don't know all of the reasons, um, I probably will never, but we'll discover them more and more as we go along. One of the reasons though, I think God is leading us to it is because when we read this letter to a church, we see that things can go terribly wrong and terribly good. And if you've been in the church very long, you know that. You know that church is this really tricky thing. You know, it's just, it's, in a lot, it's like marriage, right? Some marriages go so bad, they destroy not only themselves, but they're like nuclear reactors. They destroy generations and they destroy neighborhoods. I mean, you've seen whole friendship sets destroyed, right? And churches, in many ways, are like nuclear reactors. I mean, when they're right, they're right, but when they're wrong, they can be so wrong. And so destructive. And we get the whole length and breadth of that in 1 Corinthians. We get the glory and the, the travesty. It's all here. And so for the next 15 weeks, at this critical moment in the life of our church, as we're just now finding our legs, we're just now figuring out how to walk. We're, we're really a church in formation. We're being formed. We're still discovering who God is making us. This is going to be a place where we listen for God's voice to speak to us, not just about general truths, but about specific things for us as a church. So, if you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 2. I'll at the very end come back and say just a bit about verse 1. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in... In verse 2, this is a letter written by Paul to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, right away, we need to see the obvious. A church is not a building. You don't write letters to buildings, right? He wrote this to the church of God in Corinth. He wasn't writing to some steeple. He wasn't writing to some bricks and mortars thing. A church is a group of people. And not only is a church not a building, you are not the church, i 'm not the church, we are the church all the 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 words here they 're plural or they 're singular collectives. This idea that any single one of us is a Christian, but together we 're not just a group of christians it 's not one plus one equals two it 's not one Christian plus one Christian plus one christian equals it's it 's an entirely different thing altogether there 's an in science, you might say there's an irreducible complexity. You can't get below a church. It is the fundamental unit of the kingdom of God. Now, there are plenty of letters. Well, there are several other letters written in the New Testament to individuals. Philemon, Titus, first second. These are letters written to people, but this letter was written to a church. There's this um, passage that I that we read out of the gospel where Simon, all of the sudden, sudden Simon Peter realizes, understands, is inspired. He is, is led by God to see who Jesus is, right? You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says back to Simon, blessed are you, Simon, right? On this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Alone, You stand no chance against hell. But hell stands no chance against the church. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell won't prevail against the church. You are toast if you get outside of the church. I mean, that's part of what he's trying to say here. The gates, I mean, the the church can be a fortress in our lives at times. Many of us have experienced that, right? There have been times in our life where the fortress of the church has saved our fanny, right? And then other times, I've already said, the church can go terribly bad and it becomes this (laughs) awful machine against us. But it's precisely because it's so powerful that it can be powerful for good or bad. We are the church. Now, another thing we see here is that Paul, in writing this letter, I'm, he, he, he's going after some issues that the Corinthians are struggling with. He develops these issues throughout the letter, but he highlights them in the way he tweaks and kind of just messes with the standard way of writing a letter. The standard way of writing a letter, the author, the recipient, a greeting. Well, Paul uses a standard Greek letter writing formula, but he tweaks it. And, and, and he packs into the opening a lot of the little um, issues that he's going to deal with later on. He kind of just mentions them. Now, first, I want you to notice, he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth. This word for church. Now, the Bible, this part of the Bible that we're reading out of, it's the New Testament. And originally it was written in Greek. Um, and the word that's used here in the Greek for church is ecclesia. If you've been around Christian people very long, you, you've probably heard that word before. Ecclesia it's a noun. It comes from a, a Greek verb, kaleo, which means to call, to assemble, to gather. Now, the first two-thirds of the Bible, we call the Old Testament, and originally it was written in Hebrew. But the Jews, during the time of Jesus, they... Um, they spoke in this area predominantly Greek. And so they translated, just like we do our Bibles, they translated their Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, into Greek. We call it the Septuagint. But anyway, when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, the word they used for the people of Israel was ecclesia. So what what Paul is doing is he's... He could have picked a lot of other words to call the church. There were a lot of terms available. In fact, we're reading documents that are so close to the beginning, things are still getting straightened out and identified. But he picks this word that has these deep roots in Judaism. And it, in its Hebrew form, it also means to call or to gather. It's used in the Old Testament... Only at special moments in the life of Israel. When the nation of Israel is being gathered together before God. An example is Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 10. God tells Moses, gather the people. Now in Hebrew, the verb is kalal. But when they translate it into Greek, it's kaleo. And then when it comes over into the New Testament, it's ekklesia. It's the same word. Gather the people. Call them out. Bring them together to me that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn from me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Now, why am I going through this language lesson? (laughs) Well, back in 1 Corinthians, like I said, it's this word ekklesia. This word ekklesia and its verb kaleo, it's used four times in the Greek In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3. Well, actually, verses 1 and 2. You can't see it in English because it gets translated into other words. But four times before Paul even gets through saying hello, he's used some form of the word to call or to gather. He's making a point. What he's saying to the Corinthians is this. A church is not a voluntary organization. You were called to this. You were gathered to this. There was another initiative at play. So think about us. We are men and women and children and teenagers that God has called to this church. Now, all of us can point to our own particular way of getting here. It might have been this relationship or this set of circumstances or this person ticked me off or this person I really liked or whatever. But what I'm saying to you is that in and above and behind all of that stuff on a human level, all of those relational networks and all of those complications and all of the pain and all of the suffering that has led you to this moment, in and behind all of that is a God who is gathering us together. He is calling us to one another. And that is the word that Paul picks to name the church. He could have picked a lot of other things. Fellowship or community, but he picked this word that emphasizes God at work, God gathering us, that we didn't pick this, well, my job took me there. Yeah, but God, if he's flung the stars in place, he can fling a job or two, right? I mean, God called us to this, and we are not just a group of people who gather together for God. It is not that. It is that we are a group of saints and sinners that God has gathered together. That's what it means to call them the church. And we've got to see ourselves this way. Now, some of you are visiting our church and some of you are in the midst of of an extended period of visiting. Part of what this means is that you need to pray. God, are you calling me to be a part of this church? Don't think so much, do I like it? Do I get along? Do I fit in? But in and above and beyond all of that is, God, are you gathering me to this group of people? So right off the bat, Paul is taking the Corinthians and he's dealing with them on issues that you're going to see as we go through the letter they really struggle with. I mean, you don't know this, but if you had read that letter, it's like when you're visiting with your family and somebody says something that insults you that nobody else in the room knows, but they just went for the jugular. Paul just went for the jugular. Okay. Now, a second issue where Paul is going for the jugular right off the bat is again wrapped up in this phrase, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now to see this, you need to know that Paul wrote the letter, 1 Corinthians, in the spring of AD 55. Now he wrote a, a number of other letters in the New Testament. The two letters he wrote immediately before this were First and Second Thessalonians. It, hold, hold your finger in 1 Corinthians and look for 1 and 2 Thessalonians. It's to the right a few pages. If you get to the maps, turn left, come back you need to use your table of contents, that's fine. No Bible-finding competition in the kingdom. You'll be all right. First, uh, First Thessalonians. So this is a letter Paul wrote. This, is, this letter in the next one, he wrote immediately before writing 1 Corinthians. And I want you to notice something. Look what it says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. That's standard letter-writing formula. Identify the author... Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Identify the recipients to the church of the Thessalonians in God and give them a greeting. Okay? Look at Second Thessalonians. So this 1 Thessalonians, he wrote in 51. 2 Thessalonians, very soon thereafter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now go to 1 Corinthians. All of a sudden, Paul changed his formula. And the change is significant. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and brother Sosthenes. We'll come back to that. To the church of the Corinthians in God. Is that what it says in your Bible? No, he said to the Thessalonians. Paul write to the church of the Thessalonians in God. But when he goes to write to the Corinthians, he doesn't say the church of the Corinthians. He says what? The church of God in Corinth. Because the Corinthians had a problem. See, they were Corinthians, and that was their problem. (laughs) Corinth had been razed to the ground by the Roman Empire as it was marching through this part of the world. And uh, uh, less than 100 years before writing this letter, it got recolonized, and it got recolonized by a group of scrappy entrepreneurs. And they built this city. I don't think it was on rock and roll, but they built this city themselves from the ground up. And they owned that city. And they were arrogant. And they were independent. And it only autonomous, independent types went there. If you were establishment types, you didn't move to Corinth. It was this bootstrap place. And that was what it meant to be a Corinthian. And that was what it meant to be a Corinthian in church. You just brought all that baggage in with you. And Paul is saying to them, you are not a church that belongs to Corinthians. You are a church that belongs to God. And the change is significant. The church of God. You need to be reminded of who owns this thing. And this was tough for the Corinthians. This idea that the church does not belong to the congregation. It does not belong to the leaders. It belongs to God. Because these are fiercely autonomous people. They, they have this deep pride in their accomplishments. And like many Christians, when they became Christians, they didn't stop being who they were. They just brought their baggage because that's what a church is. It's a group of saints and sinners. And I don't mean by that some of you are saints and some of you are sinners. I mean all of us are saints and sinners all wrapped up into one. I mean, the, the, the divide of righteousness and wickedness runs right through the middle of our hearts. It doesn't separate me from another person. It separates me from myself on a good day and a bad day. A good moment and a bad moment. And they brought this in. And so Paul is saying, you are the church of God. And this is, this is something that, that is going to come up time and time again in the letter. It's funny, in all the archaeological artifacts from the city of Corinth, It was the, every building that we've dug up has an inscription on who gave the money for it. They put their name on everything. It was the way to honor and glory in that particular culture. And Paul is saying, your name is not on this church. God called you. He initiated it. It belongs to him, to the church of God. So you know what? We are the church of God in Harrisonburg. That's part of the reason we can't, plan out where this thing is going because this is God's thing and his ways are mysterious and we're, we're on for the ride. Now, a, a third thing that Paul really kind of pushes them on, it's interesting, right? Look what it says. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, earlier he said the church of the Thessalonians that is in God, but here he says the church of God that is in Corinth. You see, the kingdom of God is primarily local. The kingdom of God is primary. Life always occurs in place. Real life, real living is never an abstraction. This is a big issue for them. I mean, think about us. Here we are in this beautiful valley formed by the Allegheny Mountains on the west and Massanutten on the east. Sloan and I were in Charlottesville on Friday with Rick and Martine for a surgery. And when we were driving back, Sloan kept saying, where's that mountain? Where's that mountain? I know when I see that mountain, I'm home. He's talking about Massanutten, And sure enough, he could pick it out as we're driving through. God carved this valley with his own hands. Why? Not primarily for farming. But for living, for the rough and dirty, detailed existence of our lives. He carved this place out for us to live here in all of the complexities that make up life. This is our place. This is not just where our church happens to meet for worship. We are the church of God in Harrisonburg, in this place. And that's different than being the church of God in Raleigh or the church of God in. Wherever. It's not just that we happen to be located in this spot on the map. There's a lot wrapped up in what it means to be in Harrisonburg. And and, and for us to take our place seriously, we must think small. We must think small. It's fashionable to think big. How we're going to save the world. How we're going to transform culture. It's fashionable to think big, but when you think big, you oversimplify. This is what Wendell Berry says is wrong with the ecology movement in America today. People have stopped planting gardens, and they're arguing about the the light bills. Wendell Berry says the most important thing to do for the ecology movement is for people who believe in it to put a garden in their backyard. And he says we must think small, and it's the same about the kingdom of God. When we think big we oversimplify and then we get all these goals and we get all these desires and and we fall prey to impatience and to short term enthusiasm. Big stuff is abstract, it's impersonal. A regional church is not bound by its place, by its neighborhood. A regional church is bound by the rules of efficiency and production and volume. We need to be a neighborhood church. A local church, a parish church, firmly rooted in our place. Because neighborhood churches, parish churches, they can attend to the slow creep of life that's playing out around them. theres (laughs) I can't think of a single thing that a large church can do that a small church can't do better. Not any of the stuff that matters. I mean, there's a lot of stuff big churches can do better, but not the stuff that churches were made for that matters. Small churches are just more responsive to their place. Now, it's become popular for churches to think big. And what I'm saying is we need to have enough courage to think small because it takes a lot of courage. It takes a lot of courage to say, this is our place. And this is what we're here for. There's abundant documentation of how debilitating it is to congregations and to pastors for churches to get big. There's documentation all over the place. The main problem with being a big church is that it gets depersonalized. And anytime things get depersonalized, the gospel weakens. Soren Kierkegaard said, the more people, the less truth. In the newsletter this week, I quoted Eugene Peterson. He said the only way the Christian life is brought to maturity is through intimacy, renunciation, and personal deepening. That can happen in a large congregation. It's just very hard. You're swimming upstream. You've got a lot of hurdles. So what if we grow? What are we going to do? We're going to turn people away? No, we're not going to do that. That's insane. We're going to plant other churches. Just plant other churches because that's what we need. We need more neighborhood churches, more parish churches, more churches, more deeply rooted in their place. What I'm saying is that planting local churches is far more important and far healthier than having dreams of grandeur. Now, if we're going to be faithful to God, we must be in our place to be the church of God in Harrisonburg, to bless this place. We must be deeply rooted in the warp and woof and the texture and the nuance and the detail. We must be local. The kingdom of God is primarily local, it is relentlessly personal, and that's where the action is. Now, keep going in verse 2. Paul always locates churches in two dimensions who they are in place and who they are in Christ. Look what he says, verse 2, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Do you see how Paul is saying there are two dimensions of where you live? You live in Jesus and you live in your city. And both of those are non-negotiable. You've got to live, you've got to be a dual citizen. You've got to have one foot in both worlds. You're wrong if you try to withdraw all the way into Jesus and no longer be located in a place. And you're wrong if you try to pull all the way into a place and you forget Jesus Christ. You've got to have these intentions. This is a basic idea that we've got to be defined by who we are in this place and who we are in Christ. Both of these realities must define us. Now, What does it mean to take who we are in Christ seriously? Well, he gives us two things in this passage. First of all, he says, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Past tense. When you become a Christian, God takes you and he makes you acceptable to him. Sanctified. It means forgiven. It means the moment that you... Give your faith to Christ. When you convert, child, adult, wherever you are, whatever the baggage is, there's this incredible thing that happens that all of a sudden God accepts you. He forgives your sins. He wipes them away. You are acceptable. And now you can gather together in his presence and worship him. And he receives that worship. This is a gift we receive. It's one of the perks. It's an incredible thing, really. Forgiveness Right standing with God, given to us, and all we have to do for it is believe and trust and turn to Christ. But notice the next phrase, called to be saints. So on the one hand, something happens to you the moment you're converted, you're made right with God. But on the other hand, there is a responsibility that comes out of that calling and that responsibility is that you're called to be saints. The word for saints is really called to be holy people. Some of your bibles probably translate it that way, called to be holy people. There's a look, just like a church is a group of people God calls into his presence, it's also a group of people God calls to be holy. There must be moral there must be this moral quality about us that matches the moral quality of God. Holy people. We're summoned to live holy lives because God has chosen us. It's not God chose us because we're holy. It's God has chosen us, therefore we must live holy lives. As Christians, we must reflect God's character. You see, if we lose this, then we're more in Harrisonburg than we are in Christ. That both of these things must be True. This dual citizenship stuff, it's so tricky. <laughs> and, the, and the Corinthians really messed up in lots of places. And we'll see that. In other places, they got it right. But if we are going to represent God faithfully in this place, we must represent God faithfully in this place. We must pursue a moral quality of life that actually reflects God. Now, let's wrap all of this up by looking at verse 3. So this is the standard letter. Verse 1, he identifies the author. Verse 2, he identifies the recipients. And verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot more obviously going on here. These are the parts that I think it's good for us to listen for the voice of God about. Paul takes the um, standard greeting of the day and he tweaks it. The standard greeting of the day was karen. It's a Greek word. It means greeting. But he changes it to charis, which means grace. So he he takes his culture. You see, he's kind of standing in Christ and in the culture. He's writing, he's using normal gr- Greek letter writing formulas. Even, but every now and then he looks at part of it and says, you know what? The in Christ part of me demands I tweak that. And I'm not just saying hi to you. I'm saying grace to you. And then he adds something else, peace. Which is, his Greek version is the Greek word for the Hebrew word. Anybody know? Any ideas? Shalom. That's right. So what he's doing here is he's taking, Christ brings us this, and he's, and he's taking this Old Testament and he's putting these things together and he's saying, grace to you and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why does Paul do that? Because it sums up the gospel. Because God is the source of grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. He gives it to you. And then a result of that is shalom. Shalom is this idea of flourishing in our relationship with God, with each other, with creation. It's this incredible flourishing of life. That is the result of being in relationship with God, of His grace coming into our life. So it's this incredible thing that that Paul is saying to these Corinthians. He's saying, because you are a church, you, you get this. This is something that you're given. You're given grace. And you know what it's going to do? It produces shalom. It produces flourishing so that you can really flourish where you're planted, where you are, so that you can be rightly related to the ground and the city around you and rightly related to each other and rightly related to God. That's shalom. It's it's this intricate web of a right relationship in the whole of our lives. So as a church, God has gathered us together to be in His presence, to give us grace, and to produce shalom. That's good. I mean, do you recognize the way we end our service? The priestly blessing out of numbers? I pronounce it at the end of every service. Do you recognize this is it right here? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you shalom, peace. So what Paul was doing was he was tying this church in Corinth, these Gentiles, they were not Jews. He was tying them back into this long cosmic drama. And he's saying, you are the new Israel. You have been caught up in what God is doing. Grace to you and peace to you. Just like Aaron was told to do to the nation of Israel. Now Paul is doing to them. And I get to do... To you at the end of every service, pronounce this. And it's very much like a judge saying guilty or when they christen a ship saying I christen you or a pastor saying I pronounce you man and wife. It says in Numbers that when God's ministers pronounce this blessing, he puts God's name on them and he actually gives this to them. Now, how does that work? I don't know, but I don't have to know. I don't know a lot of things in this world. One more thing. Verse 1, we see that Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Verse 2, we see the Corinthians have become believers sanctified in Christ Jesus. And that Christians around the world are those who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 3, grace and peace come from God the Father through Jesus Christ. And, and if next week we're going to go verses 4 to 9, every single verse the name of Jesus comes up. For Paul... Christ is the center. Christ is the center of the church. You lose Christ, you lose the church. He's the hub. He's he's the thing that holds all of this together. Now, there's this lovely thing, play on words, going on. God calls us to himself. And then in response, what do we do? We call on the name of Jesus. That's what's happened this morning. You woke up. And you came here because the Spirit of God, whether you know this or not, was calling you here. And now what do we do in response? We call on the name of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we are now in unity with Christians of all stripes of all different groups all around the world, in every place where people call on the name of Jesus, there's a unity. Our unity is not in our denominational affiliation. Our unity is not in our doctrinal distinctives. Our unity is in our creed, the creed that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's why my Catholic brother is my brother, my Baptist sister is my sister, and my assembly of God, and on and on and on. That's why Paul wants them to know that. You know why he wants them to know that? Because they're Corinthians. And they think they're the only pebble on the shore. But they're not. Everyone, everywhere who calls on the name of the Lord, we are brothers and sisters. Let's pray.